Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This week, we count the costs of the war and follow some of those involved as they begin the long process of recovery. First, the cost. There is still debate about some of the statistics, as there always is after a war. However, the general consensus is that more than 100,000 men, women and children died between 1899 and 1902. At first glance, this appears to be insignificant compared to, say, the Somme, for example, during the First World War, where on one day 40,000 British casualties were recorded, or Stalingrad, where 44,000 civilians were killed on a single day in an air raid. What you have to remember is that the total population of South Africa in 1899 was around 4 million. So Britain lost 22,000, 5,774 killed by enemy action, the rest died of disease. The Boers lost around 14,000 men killed. More than 2,000 of these were foreigners, Italians, Americans, Dutch, German, French, Swedes, Norwegians, Russians, who were fighting against the British. It was the non-combatants who dominated the death roll, with at least 26,000 Boer women and children dying. Some say this figure is closer to 30,000. Then the total number of black South Africans who died in the concentration camps and in the war topped 30,000, although the latest research suggests more like 36,000. In the case of the Boers, the number of women and children who died in concentration camps amounted to almost 10% of the population of the Republic of the Transvaal and the Free State. These deaths are particularly bitter in memories even to this day. Take the story of the father who comes home from Santa Elena seeking his wife and children in Bloemfontein only to be told all have died. The British servicemen returning home by the end of the war are treated as heroes but there were many in Britain who questioned the civilian deaths and the veterans there were very sensitive about criticism as veterans always are. Awaiting many of these men is the horror of trench warfare as they became part of the British Expeditionary Force, or BEF, in Flanders and France, fighting and dying in the Great War of 1914-18. Then the Eightlanders in South Africa were incredulous at the terms of peace. The Boers would pay no reparations. In fact, it was the British who would fund rebuilding of the country to the tune of three million pounds. The Eightlanders supported Milner's view that Boers should be crushed and a whole new population brought in to run the country. And speaking of money... The total cost to the British Empire of this little war was £211,156,000. Britain had been forced to borrow money to cover budget shortfalls and politically the war had become a problem. Back in South Africa, the 100 or so columns of soldiers still marching about the felt at the end of May 1902 and in early June took the news of peace with a mixture of delight and incredulity similar in a way to how British soldiers had taken the news of the Boers' ultimatum back in 1899. Gunshots rang out along the 3,000 miles of blockhouse lines, with the garrison guns also thundering across the country. Peace at last. It was further a surreal moment in the middle of the Addo bush in the Eastern Cape region. A freak snowstorm had caught Colonel Beauchamp Doran's mounted column, and they were floundering through snowdrifts when a messenger arrived in the first week of June, with the word peace. Their reaction was, let's not meet a Boer who hasn't heard the news. Colonel Rawlinson was at a church parade when he was handed a telegram from Lord Kitchener explaining that it was indeed peace. Later, Rawlinson said, It gave me a thrill the like of which I've never felt before. 
So here is the end of all our hardships and labours. I kept the telegram in my hand until the service was over when I formed up the troops and announced the glad tidings, calling on them not to forget those friends we had lost and finishing up with three cheers for Lord Kitchener. It was only two days later that the long trek to the ports of South Africa began for the victorious army. And there was a new song soldiers began to sing as they marched to the docks, which was called Blogs, and it was about a newborn in England whose parents want to name the child after someone from the Boer War. With apologies to real vocalists, the song went something like this. The baby's name is Kitchener, Carrington, Methuen, Kekovich, White, Cronier, Plumer, Powell, Majuba, Gattaca, Warren, Kalenzo, Kruger, Cape Town, Mafeking, French, Kimberley, Ladysmith, Bobs, the Union Jack and Fighting Mac led out Pretoria blogs. Then the verse went, The parson said these names upon this infant I can't pop, so my wife she bruised this rolling felt and jumped on his spear and cop. She kicked his mounted infantry until his Bloemfontein was sore. Then she did a flanking maneuver and she started out once more. So that was the song called Blogs. Interviewed many years later by the historian Thomas Packenham, some said that they remembered that march to the docks as one of the highlights of their lives. They created their own mythology as they went. Very pleasant time for a young fellow, a regular sort of picnic, a gentleman's war, the happiest year of my life. These are examples of comments by British veterans who were officers. Meanwhile, the winter winds were blowing the sand over the graves of their friends scattered across the African felt. Other veterans, particularly the lowest ranking, saw the war slightly differently. It was a cruel war. It was. We were half-starved most of the time. I never saw the point of it. It was the worst war ever. Johnny Boer, he used to shoot blacks like you shoot a dog. It was all for the gold mines. Ah, the gold mines. The metal that glitters and causes blood. We covered the causes of the war in episode 1 and 2, which included a lack of vote for the Eightlanders, increased urbanization, which went against Boer culture, and imperialists like Rhodes and Milner, who wanted to reduce the Boers to a kind of Roma people, where they lose their land and be forced to trek around the world forever. Landless. Wasn't that simple in the end. The English quartermaster general was counting the cost, however, apart from the £211 million in change. Over 400,300 horses and mules had died, creating a shortage of the beasts in England, Argentina, parts of America, and the Middle East. 363,693 imperial troops and 82,742 colonial soldiers had fought for the British. This experience led directly to Canada, for example, creating its own army separate from the British, and Australia and New Zealand following suit. Another direct effect of the Boer War, which would have ramifications for these nations in the upcoming First World War battles. The Dardanelles, where the British would send Anzac troops as a first wave because they'd fought so well in South Africa. Well, the Australians and New Zealanders died in their thousands at Gallipoli. The British army changed in many ways, and yet... They forgot some of the things they'd learnt when the British Expeditionary Force, or BEF, arrived on the Western Front in 1914. They forgot that you don't march across open ground when your opponent is dug in, armed with automatic weapons and smokeless gunpowder and inside deep trenches. It was also reorganised, but the old class-conscious British Army remained largely unchanged. It's true 
The antiquated war office machine in Paul Mall was given new premises as well as new general staff and overhauled. The commander-in-chief of the British Army, Lord Roberts, who had captured the main towns and cities in South Africa during the Boer War, arrived at the Horse Guards one morning in 1904 to find his position had ceased to exist. The cabinet created a chief of the general staff instead. Roberts had been, in modern parlance, shafted. He retired, but was brought back when the war was declared with Germany. Lord Roberts, the master of South Africa, died in the autumn of 1914 at the age of 83, pushing his way to the BEF frontline at Saint-Omer on the Western Front. You could say that at an advanced age, he died with his boots on. So back in South Africa, after the peace agreement in 1902, the bitter enders emerged from their hiding places. The Boers themselves had no real idea exactly how many were hidden away. In the end, the total was 21,000, not the 14,000 the Boers thought had remained in the field. They went through the motions of tossing the thousands of British Lee Enfields onto piles at special meeting points. There were prayers uttered by the commandants. British intelligence reports said their morale was high. The Boers had held their chins up and did not look defeated. Around the country, the word went out about peace, and in the same breath, the Boers were saying, Our time will come. Around them, the Hanzoppers or joiners, the Boers who'd fought for the British, looked like outcasts. You see, a fifth of all fighting Afrikaners by the end of the war had fought for the English, and it was a secret that was to be buried for some time. In the years to come, men and women would identify those who surrendered and those who continued fighting as a sort of medal of dishonor versus honor. Whispers continued behind the backs of these men, and they still do. Then the bitter enders trekked to the concentration camps to search for their loved ones. The survivors returned to their homesteads, devastated almost beyond recognition. Several million cattle, horses and sheep were gone. Carcasses dotted about the felt like macabre memories. The farmhouses were ripped to pieces. The British had used the walls and corrugated iron to build blockhouses. The doors and window frames had been burned as firewood in a landscape often bereft of trees. Smuts, Boerta and other Boers began to process the claims of reparations, and these numbered over 63,000. And yet, the majority of the three million pounds donated by the British government went to hands-uppers and the Eightlanders, further embittering the hardliners. However, the biggest losers in this war were black South Africans. You see, the question of the franchise had been shelved by the British, with a vague proviso that, at some point after the Eightlanders and Boers had figured out how they'd create their new society, they'd get around to thinking about black franchise. The total number of blacks who died in the Boer War is unknown. Black Transvaal landowners, for example, filed for a total amount of £661,000 in compensation, but few Africans had property in the Free State, at least according to records. No one had bothered to keep an account of the number of blacks who died fighting for both the Boers and the British. There were at least 107,000 black Boers, as they called themselves, and many died in the battles or the concentration camps. 10,000 black South Africans fought for the British as scouts, messengers and blockhouse guards, another 40,000 as drivers and laborers. How many died? We don't know. A Bakhatla chief called Lesobi Paladi, whose father had helped the British fight the Boers in the Western Transvaal, believed the post-war political situation was inevitable and said, There is a saying, when brothers fight, never intervene. In English, 
They normally say blood is thicker than water, so the English people together with the Boers made friends again. And what about the hardliners? Marnie Moritz, the man who'd been accused of a war crime at Liefontein, reacted like a crazed man, described by his grandson later. They say that in the morning he got onto his horse and he rode around the fields like someone possessed. He was afraid that there would be peace, and he did not know how to deal with that. There was a great deal of animosity when General Smuts came back and he said he'd made peace because the people did not want peace. They said that if you fight for freedom, then only death should separate you and your freedom. Marie Proudfoot, who was in Bloemfontein's concentration camp, was venomous in her analysis of the Boers who'd fought for the British. Do you know what a joiner is? He is a bedbug who should be squashed to death. That's what he is, bedbug. Kill him. The suffering continued for many of the men who were searching for loved ones. You can understand Marie Proudfoot's anger at the bedbugs as she watched those who'd refused to join the British arrive looking for their loved ones. You know, there are people who, when they arrive at the camps, everybody in their families were dead. There was nobody, no child, no wife, nobody. They signed the peace. Nobody was left. The man would stand there with his hat on his head and his horse on his arm. He would look for them. Where are they? And someone would say, over there in the cemetery. Those poor women. Another woman, Abri Oosthuizen, described her grandmother's story. She had been forced to take over the role of protector and had a steely spine. Oosthuizen explains one incident where her grandmother took charge. The group of women at the station embraced their husbands and cried, and it was a terrible scene. But my grandmother was a tiger of a woman, and she went to him. Gideon, don't just stand there sobbing. Come to the farm. There's work to be done. And Lesobi Palladi of the Transvaal told historian Tabita Jackson that it was not good because when the war was over we did not get anything. The English gave land to the Boers and nothing to us. And that was very unfair because we all fought in this war. Maruti Setulwani, whose father had helped General Kronia's wife escape from the Transvaal from the clutches of the British, said his family were betrayed by the whites they had supported. Before the war, the people lived together. They worked their lands together. Then, after the war, there came the big tragedy of the divide. When they had helped Afrikaner, the Boer, thinking that it was their own war too, and when the spoils of the war came in the Union of South Africa, they were sidelined. They were pushed out. They were sold out because the whites needed two things at this point. One, a way to work together after a brutal war. The second, cheap labor. The gold mines were throbbing back to life, the factories of Johannesburg were restarting, and there was a pressing need for men and women to work in these industries. Within a decade, South Africa was a self-governing dominion of the British Empire, just what Smuts and Butter thought likely when they sued for peace. In 1910, Natal, the Cape Colony, the Transvaal and the Orange Free State were brought together to form the Union of South Africa. Louis Butter was the first Prime Minister. So... We must ask, who won the war in South Africa? The Boers went to war for their liberty, and ultimately they were successful once rebuilding got underway. It was clear who lost the war. Black South Africa. Article 8 of the Terms of Peace sealed the fate of the majority and pushed back their rights by almost 100 years. 
By postponing the question of the native franchise until after the republics had become self-governing, Great Britain had rubber-stamped the disenfranchisement of the majority. Yes, you can say it's hindsight comment, and you can say this kind of thing happened at those times. It's all very well to judge 2020 rules when it was 1902, and things were different then, but that would miss the point. John X. Merriman was constantly warning at the time to introduce the Cape Qualified Franchise System, which was hardly full franchise, but it was better than nothing. Yet even this limited bow to the reality of a majority was rejected. When the Union of South Africa was debated in 1909, the issue of black franchise was a hot topic. Instead of enshrining rights, however, the Union did the opposite and included a colour bar in the new constitution, thus dooming everyone's descendants at the time to have to deal with this prickly subject. Land ownership would be restricted. The Land Act of 1913 reinforced this view and set in motion the next century of conflict. The rights of blacks, which actually had been protected by laws in the Cape and Natal, were eroded steadily over the next few decades, until apartheid really got going. Worse, the Anglo-Boer War was exploited by white nationalists after 1948, when Daniel Malan's National Party replaced Jan Smuts' more liberal administration, the South African Party. There was a deliberate us-and-them policy which started, and our children are still trying to sort it out. This led to a partial reinvention of Afrikaner history, where hands-uppers were quietly forgotten as a group, which tends to happen after a time of change. Historian Franz Johann Pretorius explains that History constantly walks along, looking over its shoulder at the Anglo-Boer War. What happened there? The Anglo-Boer War became a time for the creation of myths for the Afrikaners. One of these was the verkrampt vision of the country, that blacks are the biblical children of Ham, genetically doomed to chop wood and carry water for whites, who were more evolved and had become the chosen race. This still dominates the political and social view of many people in South Africa, as we enter a time of blatant corruption dominated by a black political party that led the country into democracy, the African National Congress. The historical backdrop includes this terrible war, and many continue to define their lives through the suffering of that time. It's transposed into the 21st century, and as with all agitation propaganda, there's truth and twisted reality bound up in this narrative. So, you may all recognize the narrative. It goes like this. Capitalism through Jewish and English cash flooded the Transvaal and took away independence from the chosen ones. Concentration camps caused terrible suffering, while Boer heroes committed great deeds. Great generals gave the empire a bloody nose because they were honorable men who were chosen by God to fight injustice. This rallying cry united both English and Afrikaans whites at points in South Africa's history into the future. Do you remember how many Irish, English and other nationalities fought for the Boers against the empire, motivated by what they saw as London's cruel financial control in the world? And of course, watching all of this was Sol Plaiki, who, if you remember, had worked as a translator for Baden-Powell while besieged in Mafeking during the early phases of the Anglo-Boer War. Plaiki was radicalized by what he'd seen in the northwestern town, where blacks were always underfed and treated badly by the British as well as the Boers. So naturally, when black intellectuals got together after the Anglo-Boer War to consider what to do, Sol Plaiki was one of the first to jot down a few ideas about freedom and justice. 
His ideas led to what's known as the Freedom Charter, drawn up much later in 1955 and ultimately is part of our existing constitution of 1994, of which most South Africans are very proud. It's incredible just how the connection between these stories of the past and our present are woven together, and it's always a source of some disquiet for us as historians to monitor how people forget history and then are obviously doomed to repeat it. The disaster of Lord Kitchener's scorched earth left black and white land devastated. The suffering was caused essentially by a concerted effort to combine empire building with loads of treasure emanating from the gold mines. The British financial class were not going to let the mines go to the Boers, and later the Boers with English colonial support were not going to let the mines go to the blacks. This is what happened. These are the facts. And so, we still have one more episode to go in this series. I'll tell you about what happened to some of the more unusual characters we've met, what happens to them into their futures. Denise Reitz, Christian de Vett, Jan Smat, Sol Palaki, Louis Boerter, Churchill, Gandhi, Rawlinson, Hamilton, Haig. So thank you to all those who have sent me notes about the end of this series. Many have spoken to me emotionally about being connected again to their ancestors. Thanks in particular to Andre, who calls himself an Afrikaans boy living in New Zealand who stumbled on a memorial in New Plymouth, and who sent me a photo of the plinth. It reads... In honoured memory of the Taranaki troopers who fell in the South African War 1899-1902, erected by their fellow settlers. So head off to my website abwarpodcast.com for more pictures. And to all my listeners, I've been blessed by you over the years adding your voices to my attempts at telling the story of this war as you've stayed in touch and brightened my week with lovely personal stories and how this war touched us all around the world. Please don't forget to rate the podcast on iTunes or you can message me on Twitter at Des Latham or send me a mail through the website abwarpodcast.com. This is the penultimate episode, folks. Next week, it will be the last. Till then, goodbye. <laughs> O bring me terug naar die oud Transvaal, daar waar my sari woon. Daar onder in die mil is by die groen door een boom, daar woon my sari maar Daar onder in die mil is by die groen door